So uh, once again there are um, a number of questions, a few uh, comments which have been made and um, also uh, a number of questions which uh, was rather too difficult to read uh, the handwriting and might suggest therefore that um, if you know your, your handwriting um, isn't easy to read it might be easier for me please if you, you could print the questions rather than write them. You spoke of spiritual practice bringing joy why has there been such a noticeable and disturbing lack of it here? Hmm. Um, in the talk yesterday evening I referred to the Brahma Viharas with four divine abidings and one of them being joy, spiritual joy and the joy which emerges out of practice, out of understanding. In the talk, I mentioned that the Buddha spoke of this as being the highest state of consciousness, <coughs> one of the major fulfillments of the spiritual life and experience. And, it, and therefore, we're not speaking of practice in instant coffee terms. And so one may come in five days ago and do some practice and then say, well, where's the joy? <laughs> I mean, it's been a bit greedy, isn't it? <laughs> the joy with regard to practice, even so, I would say, both from observation here from speaking with people, from knowing of uh, quite a number of you as long-standing uh, friends of practice, there is a noticeable and, and disturbing presence of joy here. And uh, quite a number of you, I know, do get from the practice, from mindfulness and observation, a great deal of joy out of this practice and others of course are working with and working through very difficult stuff which has not been looked at possibly ever in one's life and which arises sometimes as rep uh, repressions from the past and pains and anxieties with regard to life itself so the variation of what is taking place here is really quite considerable and I think rather necessary for us with our practice to be very cautious here about making any generalizations about what is happening in the hearts and minds of other people on the retreat. It's far too diverse a situation. But I do say that if a person does engage in this practice, engages in, in these practices of which vipassana is an aspect of spirituality, there will be joy in life. I promise you that. 
As a non-smoking vegetarian who has never mastered up a career, it is easy for me to listen, agree with and laugh at your opinions and comments regarding these matters. My guess is that you have a pretty sympathetic audience here. But what about smoking, meat-eating, meat-eating workaholics? Telling someone you love that... I had missed the word out here. Um, who has been smoking their entire lives that it's self-destructive usually doesn't help that person to stop and may in fact make them tune you out. What are your thoughts about getting someone to listen to you and motivating them and supporting them to change habits and beliefs? I'm asking on both the personal level, dealing with friends and family, and also on a broader political level in terms of changing the world. Um, I, w um, I would not say, actually, that I have um, a more sympathetic audience uh, here than, uh, uh, in, than in the Western situation. Um, there are, generally speaking here, quite a few people who are smoking, sometimes thinking that uh, smoking beadies um, isn't really the same as smoking cigarettes. <laughs> um, and uh, um, it isn't, in fact. Um, beadies have 13 times the tar content that cigarettes do. Um, and with this, with this uh, area of no smoking and, and being vegetarian, um, I quite agree with the person. It's no use just um, telling someone that it's self-destructive. One has to provide a supportive and loving and caring environment to give a person who is motivated, who is motivated, uh, time, space and opportunity to come, if the person wishes to, out of such patterns and <coughs> habits. Because it's my view that I feel that uh, the sinking of one's teeth into flesh is a somewhat uncivilized <coughs> form of living doesn't mean to say that another person is going to agree with me but hopefully if one is providing nutritious diet well balanced and an emphasis in that direction it may possibly bring about within the person a questioning, well, do I need that form of diet? Do I need meat? Do I need to support <coughs> factory farming and all that goes with it? <coughs> and, and that's where, and it's therefore, I say, a sympathetic and supportive atmosphere. And similarly with um, workaholics in the West, it's quite regular that people who are presidents on the boards of major... Um, uh, international companies with regard to career, please, I say exactly the same. And in that, say, it's not so much, and if the work it one is doing isn't destructive, and some works and some of these multinationals are, are extremely destructive, if the work isn't destructive, it's not so much, the, I feel the emphasis comes <coughs> off the career and this running up the social ladder 
basically on the backs of other people, and more towards uh, an awareness in life, in one's social relationships, in one's commitments, in where it is necessary to put the focus. And if, as a result of that, one, so to, see, so to speak, proceeds up the ladder in one's particular, particular field, well and good, but it's not the reason for one's existence. And that's where my protest about career comes. When you say, may all beings, etc., <laughs> who are those beings? <laughs> Don't worry, sir, you're included. <laughs> um, is your definition of beings according to Buddhist philosophy, including hungry spirits, etc., but excluding plant life? Please, I say, may all beings. Now, does all sound exclusive? <laughs> One of the main theses in Buddhism is all life is suffering. But life sometimes can be very happy too. <laughs> According to the other person, except on meditation retreats, but anyway. So shouldn't one try to live as happily as, and as long as possible, <coughs> instead of trying to get out of the circle of life as soon as possible? <laughs> Reminds me of um, chai shops 20 years ago. What do you think of this? Sorry. Um, firstly, unfortunately, this idea that um, the main thesis of Buddhism is life is suffering, it's a complete fiction. There's nowhere, no, the Buddha has never ever said this, would never say this. And one only has to read the texts and do the practices to, to, to hear about the depth, of, again, of, of joy, peace, love, warmth, care, com com compassion, interconnectedness, relatedness. Peace. Does that sound like full of life is all suffering? What the Buddha has said is quite, quite different. That in life there is suffering. <coughs> and that this suffering is a major truth of life, or in the classic terminology, a noble truth of life. And this suffering <coughs> has its causes. It doesn't come through fate, through destiny, through, through some creator up there who's malicious. It comes through causes in life. And that this suffering has its end and there are ways and means to reach the end of this suffering. And therefore, happiness in life is, of course, obviously a feature of life. And, and therefore the emphasis is not trying to get out from, <coughs> but to see deeply into life, to see so deeply into life that oneself, as, the, as it were, on the centre of the stage, with all the ego structure and obsession that goes with it, loses its impact. 
In one session, after having concentrated for some time on the breath, it felt shortly as if I and the breath are not different. But then I became happy, in other words, self-consciously aware of the pleasant feeling that arose, identifying with it, and this stopped the unity and development. Is happiness always a disturbance? As the person points out, in an, an important point, that sometimes in the practice, and say with working with the breathing and connecting uh, with it, there's a feeling, a response of, uh, of happiness. The happiness of, of calmness of mind, of being connected with, of just allowing the nature to flow in and out freely by itself. And then very easily, as the po person points out, one, one very much... Um, identifies with it, grasps hold of this experience. And in, and in fact, it's the grasping hold of which creates a disturbance. And so often, isn't it, in many things in life, we're experiencing something, some happiness, some joy in life, and then, and then in the very grasping, we cling to it, and then trying to get it back again. And so, in that respect, <coughs> I wouldn't say that happiness is a disturbance, but an, one of the outcomes which occurs out of being uh, with the breathing, and through that uh, outcome, when there is pleasant feeling there, one is aware of it, of course, one connects with it, one appreciates it, and still, with or without the feeling, allows that um, continuity of meditation practice with the breathing. I think there's another question on the other side. <laughs> Not very important. What inspired you to become a monk? And what made you, after six years, decide to leave the monkhood? Um, I decided to become a monk in order to practice. I decided to leave the monkhood in order to continue the practice in another form. I was wondering if you had some Indians participating in this retreat, and if so, what their reactions were, for example, was it, is it, or was it easier for them because they were brought up in the East? Um, there are uh, at least three people with the retreat who are from uh, India, and the, uh, the silence ends on the tenth day of the uh, retreat in the morning, and you have um, ample opportunity between the tenth end of the tenth morning and the rest of your life to explore this question. <laughs> <laughs> I have wanted and often tried not to be attached to the people I love. Although non-attachment makes perfect sen sense to me logically, my feelings of possessiveness and jealousy seem so very deeply rooted in me, and I have not been able to rid myself of them. How can one work towards bridging the gap between intellect and emotion when they conflict? 
What do you think of monogamy and marriage in relationship to non-attachment? <coughs> we might say four different forms of practice are in fact acting as a bridge between the intellect and the emotion. Insofar as we may say, as the person um, observes, that um, logically speaking it's necessary and valuable for human welfare that we become less possessive, less jealous, less attached in that clinging form. Um, and our thoughts can say that ad nauseum, I shouldn't be like this. But it doesn't make much difference to the uh, feeling and emotional life and so, finding bridges. One of the useful uh, bridges is therapy, another is reflection, um, an another, another is um, meditation practice, another is sharing and group work. It's finding of different forms in which what we, shall we say, we know with our head, we truly come to know with our heart. If the form of uh, jealousy, and possessiveness is of a, an intense form and causing a great deal of pain in one's life, then one would say one needs more uh, professional work, professional assistance, and using the specialized skills and resources of uh, trained people to work with this particular area. And it's worth doing, obviously, worth giving time to, worth finding ways and means to bridge what we know with our head and bring it to heart. What do you think of monogamy and marriage in relationship to non-attachment? <laughs> um, um, although I am um, a, um, a parent, and these days I'm more of a, a single parent when I am at uh, home, um, I regard marriage uh, as a personal choice. A personal choice in that some uh, men and women like to give uh, affirmation to the tradition of marriage and use it as being um, representative and indicative of their mutual commitment. It's a kind of sign um, to friends. Um, through the marriage ceremony, whether civil or religious, of the commitment. Um, it's also um, an opportunity, of course, to get um, a lot of presents. Um, um, one must never neglect, forget all the motives. Um, <laughs> uh, and and this also, is, um, yes, also um, tends to make one's parents um, happy. <laughs> Uh, um, for myself, um, I am uh, um, not married, I make my parents miserable, uh, um, and I regard marriage basically as simply as a social contract. In other words, it's um, taking hold of a pen and um, um, putting a signature to it. It doesn't seem to protect relationships at all. And in fact, I've noticed that with a number of my friends who were in a, um, shall we say, more informal relationship <coughs> for a number of years, 
that, the, that when they got married, um, everything started going cockeyed. So m marriage as a tradition is quite under uh, threat these days. And in England, um, the number of marriages which break down is, um, and end in divorce at the present time is one in three. And uh, in uh, California, it's um, one in two and a quarter. I haven't understood the quarter aspect of it. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I, do, I rather like the one of the ladies um, who said, I've been married, it was California, where else? I've been married three times, and uh, each of my marriages has been a great success. <laughs> But when, when I was in California a few, a few years ago, one of, the, one of my friends, um, one of the women friends on the retreat, um, she brought her mother to um, meet me. She's 65 years of age. And um, her mother, she came with her husband, and uh, it was her ninth husband. She'd been, she'd been married nine times. And so we were talking there. He seemed a very nice, quiet, pleasant person. And... Um, and Halfway through the conversation, he got up to um, go to the toilet, and she came over and whispered it in my ear. She says, he's very nice, but I'm thinking of getting divo a divorce. <laughs> um, as far as the um, m um, monogamy goes, um, I, I would say... Um, um, to me, I don't put a high priority on... Um, Mon monogamy or what's the other opposite polygamy whatever polygamy. yes right and uh, but what I do observe that where there are these experiments <coughs> in um, um, triangular relationships and quadrangular and um, <coughs> whatever the other words are um, it doesn't seem to work very well in fact to say it doesn't seem to work very well at all and uh, unfortunately, uh, um, the re harsh reality is that a great deal of suffering tends to ensue between one partner or couple or uh, all three as a result of um, going outside the field of the monogamous relationship. And, and suffering is the aspect of it, I feel, which does require much care and attention. And therefore, it seems <coughs> to be that the monogamous relationship is one which, uh, providing that one's friends don't interfere with that relationship, is the kind of relationship which is most likely to be stable and with love, care and support, both from the couple towards each other and from friends in a non-interfering way, is the best chance for a relationship to stay together um, with uh, joy and appreciation within it. <coughs> Should we try to go by order in the body meditation or can we <coughs> go from the knee to the eye? <coughs> uh, there's n with, the guide, with regard to the body meditation and moving the attention through the body, there's no particular <coughs> order which is necessary in any way, but rather it's this general experiencing of the body. In the course of the sitting, it may take a 
whole uh, 45 minute hour session just to go through once or one may go through um, a number of times but point is to have the sense of being clear about it and that, so it's perfectly okay to go from knee to eye and an eye from toes but doing it mindfully and clearly if one isn't doing it mindfully and clearly in the body meditation it brings generally the, out the feeling that one is just running around jumping from one thing to another and it feels unsettled it feels somewhat scattered and that one is compelled to follow up this follow up that so basically the uh, in guideline is moving the attention through the body exploring uh, everywhere if some pain is very strong in a particular place, going to that place and dealing with it as much as possible and continuing through. If, for example, you move your attention, say you get to, from the head to the shoulders and then your <coughs> mind wanders out, come back to the place where your attention wandered off, stay there for a few moments or so, get steady, continue moving the attention all the way down. And, and with the body meditation, developing the sense of experiencing and bringing it to completion starting and completing and very valuable development and training for the mind so often in life we, we start something we, and we get all excited or interested and motivated and then it begins to fade and we are constantly um, incompleting situations and that can get reflected in our meditation practice as well, starting and not completing. So, with the practice, working with the body, right all the way through, bring it to completion. If you haven't completed when we come to the end of a sitting, then spend a little bit more time in here so that this really is worked through. Is resistance a form of conflict? Can we skillfully line or live, sorry, an alternative to the status quo without conflict? Does working for change <laughs> have to bring about a state of stress and tension? <coughs> Is resistance a form of conflict? Um, basically, uh, basically, yes. And this is where skills and uh, practices, and I would say particularly the practices um, which one uh, can learn here and in the East, is a valuable form of knowing and experiencing <coughs> resistance as a form of conflict, yet the conflict doesn't lead to the typical reactions which come out of conflict. In other words, you may look at some of the, as the things which are taking place in our world and in our, so our society, and one feels resistance to it, resistance to conforming to it, uh, resistance to supporting it, 
resistance to um, main <coughs> maintaining it. And so we might say, in those periods of time, we're in conflict with it. There's a conflict. One doesn't wish to support this, this the destruction of the earth, one doesn't wish to support this, this neurotic accumulation of wealth, one doesn't wish to uh, support the justifications for violence, whether of the state, or uh, whether of terrorism, or whatever. And one feels one's, one's in, in conflict with this. One is in conflict with any forms of chauvinism, one is resistant to any, any forms of nationalism whatsoever. All, all of this one must say, I am in conflict with these kind of ideas. But, if there is a foundation for it, that conflict itself doesn't lead to aggression, to violence, to justification for violence, whether of the word or whether of action. And so, conflict we may have to face, but in experiencing conflict with others and experiencing our resistance to it, finding alternative means to deal with it. And so within uh, NVDA, that's nonviolent direct action, there is more and more exploration taking place, more and more groups and great privilege of having contact with a small number of them all over the planet who are exploring ways for change, social change, inner and outer change, who are aware of the resistance which arises and find ways and means, new, fresh ways and means to deal with it. And that, therefore, that some of the consequences of the conflict, such as stress and tension, do not have to be um, an end result. And in this respect, too, I may say, that a number of people in the helping professions, and this is an aside here, doing and engaged in service for others, because of the state of things, are particularly prone to stress and tension. And... <laughs> And therefore, different forms and ways and means for inner renewal is quite necessary for people who are committed outwardly. Because when, the, when this stress and tension uh, begins to increase, the end result of it is pretty well invariably some kind of burnout and disillusionment. Back to the story of the fishes. This is a very fishy retreat. Um, <laughs> while agreeing with what you have, um, have said, it is true that big fishes eat smaller fishes, expressed as the law of the jungle, survival of the fittest. We are trying to know ourselves better and live more in harmony with our natural surroundings. Where does that put us in relation to the above law? You see, this, this, this is um, a kind of spin-off, if I may, may say, understandable, but a spin-off of these Darwinian theories. And first of all, it's very necessary, I would say, to, uh, and useful here to um, 
read Darwin and, and the commentaries on Darwin, who has been long since, I feel, misrepresented and undermined. And one really, in reading Darwin, sees very much how much of a, a caring relationship he has with, with life. In that, I would not like to define something as a law. A law, I mean a natural law, is something which is given and somewhat unchangeable. For example, if I throw, or you throw, a stone up in the air, the law is due to gravitation and all those things, is that it will come down, I think it's something like 33 feet per second, or whatever. So in, 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 in the natural law, we say we throw a stone up, we don't expect it to float off, you know, somewhere. But we can't take that kind of principle, let us say, and then transfer it into the uh, differences between human kingdom and animal kingdom. And we have done that. We have done that because we are, because we aren't evolved. And in, in other words, there may be the law, there may be in the jungle this uh, hunt and the hunted, and all that takes place in that. There may be the so-called survival of the fittest. But we are human beings, we have an element of awareness and consciousness. Do we have to live in that fashion? We have, cho we have done so, not chosen, we have done so. We have done so for centuries. We have lived like we're living in the jungle. And the hunter and the hunted and all, the, all that emerges out of that. But, is it, but surely there is an opportunity for us as human beings to sense our connections with life and our solidarity through life, not through behaving like animals, but through, through, through a, a real abiding awareness of life. And if that is, that is there, there won't be this tragic and terribly sad destruction of the animal species which is taking place. Year in, year out, species after species is being destroyed and, and, and much of it is because we are unable uh, as human beings to have the sense of responsibility towards life. The animals themselves cannot speak up for themselves. They don't have that. So we have a particular responsibility in relationship to the to animal life and their, and their welfare. And, for, and unfortunately, if I may say in traditions here, in these areas, so little, hardly anything is spoken of with regard, with regard to these things. And they're not easy things, but things and areas of life which truly need to be uh, addressed. If lots of questions on joy, I will touch on them another time. 
Is there such a thing as a person who is incapable or greatly limited in meditation capacity? Corpse is definitely limited. Um, uh, the, the, the Buddha uh, has referred to four types of people, and it, 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 some of the questions are, um, I would say, particularly interesting for those of you who have uh, knowledge of the uh, any knowledge of the texts, uh, the meditation texts which have uh, appeared and uh, reappeared over many centuries. Many of the uh, questions which are asked were asked a century ago, two centuries ago, two thousand years ago, three thousand years ago. Many of these questions are often ring from things which I have uh, seen and read from texts which have been translated in the recent years uh, from texts five hundred thousand years ago, three thousand years ago. And uh, this, is, this also reminds me. And the Buddha said there are four types of people in meditation practice. One kind of person goes um, joyfully and quickly in their meditation practice. The second type of person goes painfully but quickly in their meditation practice. The third type of person goes joyfully but slowly in their meditation practice. <laughs> and the fourth, of which I hope you're not all identifying with, <laughs> goes painfully and slowly in their <laughs> meditation practice. So, as, with regard to the uh, capacity of the person in the field of uh, meditation, <coughs> um, sometimes and often quite necessary, that the meditation practice has to be in conjunction with other things, such as listening to the Dharma, such as um, uh, the checking, such as being in contact with like-minded people. All of those are <coughs> important and supportive factors alongside the meditation. And with that, the capacity to meditate um, develops a great deal. <coughs> And I would say there is nobody here that I've seen so far who is uh, incapable of sustained and beneficial meditation practice. And if there was, I'm not shy, I would tell you straight away. Um, let's take a, still as you can see, a whole batch of these uh, questions. <coughs> In almost every spiritual system, people are supposed to give up or transcend sexual energy into spiritual energy. Isn't the life energy involved in both the same? So we should have sex together, should we? Really? <laughs> Can, uh, can conscious and losing and loving sexuality lead to deeper awareness and spirituality, or is it a waste of potential spiritual energy? Brackets, especially having orgasm. 
Um, it's one of the areas where there seems to be uh, quite often a lot of difficulty and uh, confusion uh, with regard to the relationship of sexuality and spirituality. Um, it's not a contemporary one by any means. In, um, religion itself has had its long-standing struggle, shall we say, in trying to resolve or keep apart um, these two uh, energies. And, uh, and, and, and it's not unusual where there is uh, an inability to understand and integrate sexuality with spirituality is the tendency, of course, to uh, put down sexuality, to speak of transcending it, to um, um, make uh, celibacy a kind of consummation of spiritual um, seriousness, and, um, and in some cases um, making people with this kind of religious frame of mind feel guilty for uh, sexual experiences and so forth. So it's a long-standing difficulty. And, and of course, the, uh, here the uh, concept which is used uh, in terms of sexual, sexuality is a tantra, I mean, one expression of tantra or the variety of tantras. And it's not an easy one in a real and practical sense to work with and integrate into one's life. Partly, I would say, because um, sexua sex sexuality is um, a strong and uh, um, emotional form of uh, experience and tends to have quite some degree of impact on the person's consciousness. So therefore, I if, if I may say, if I may say for myself here, that um, I spent um, um, quite a number of years, many years, uh, um, out of a relationship and therefore not having any uh, sexual uh, life in throughout my uh, uh, 20s and uh, early 30s. And uh, in more recent uh, years and since uh, disrobing, I've um, been in relationship and therefore have been exposed to uh, sex sex sexual life. Uh, firstly, I would say that um, sexual life doesn't, as is one of the common myths, um, from my experience, drain one's spiritual energy. But this is a myth. <coughs> that what one needs with regard to spirituality and sexuality and is that if one is going to be in relationship and therefore experience and participate in the sexual life, one needs to bring to it all the qualities of spirituality. Awareness, care, love, joy. Sensi sensitivity. Very, very easy within sexuality for there to be um, abuse, um, subtle manipulation or gross, uh, undermining, using and abusing. These kind of unhealthy patterns get into relationship, into sexual relationship. And so spiritual, spiritual energy, uh, when harmonized with the flow of the se sexual en energy in that caring, mutually caring and supportive way, in fact, brings a great deal of energy and not in any way a uh, conflict with uh, spiritual practices.
Could you give some instructions on meditation in the horizontal posture? One is a prelude to sleep, and two, when one does not want to sleep, including any tricks to avoid falling asleep. Um, sleep time is uh, often the transition into sleep is some, for some um, quite a difficult period of time, and some for some people, unfortunately, a long history of difficulty in making them tra transition from wake to, to sleep. Others, others of us, uh, generally put our head on the, on the pillow, we barely remember doing it. Um, I would say with regard to going to sleep, and certainly again instructions are there in the various texts, basic principle is that the body itself is completely straight. One is lying uh, on one side, the heart is facing up, so as not to put pressure on it. One let, uh, feels the whole body through and lets the totality of the body settle into the mat, <coughs> settle into the uh, mattress, and, and keeps totally still. Whether or not one is, uh, falls asleep immediately or not, one's allowing for as much relaxation with the sitting, with the lying down there as possible. <coughs> if uh, there's a great deal of energy, then, then one might sit, or if one, after a period of time of sleeping, uh, one wakes up, then to get up and start the practice. The other is with regard to um, horizontal posture, not wishing to fall uh, asleep. And yes, there are tricks. The trick which I uh, used to, uh, simple trick I used What's the difference? between putting your heart into it and putting your mind, being mindful, being careful. There is certainly a qualitative difference. Um, heart cannot be excluded from a meditation process and practice. There is always a possibility, and this is particular with uh, insight meditation, with vipassana, which is what insight meditation means, in that the practice becomes dry. In other words, lacking this feeling factor, feeling quality to it. And the way that that shows and expresses itself is through the practice becoming um, repetitious, mechanical, habitual, and having to quite some degree a dulling effect upon consciousness <coughs> instead of an enlivening one. And so, in other words, one can take the breath <coughs> meditation and one can be counting up dozens of breaths and having success in terms of the mechanics of being in contact with the breathing, but one isn't actually engaged in vipassana meditation. So <coughs> the meditation, therefore including the heart, 
and therefore not a mechanical process, is very much aware of the organic life, which isn't mechanical and which requires from us sensitivity, receptivity, interest, and, the f and particularly feeling, a feeling of life. And if the feeling of life is present when breathing, when walking, when sitting, when eating, then our practice will be in touch with organic nature and not be reduced to mechanistic activity. And it, this is where the practice and feeling uh, becomes intertwined. And so be watchful and mindful of just being caught up with the mechanistic habitual processes. <coughs> I can see that during mindfulness of the tensions in the body they calm down and that one doesn't give new nourishment due to alertness at that time. But sustained mindfulness is supposed to bring up the old nourishment of past actions and causes. Why is this coming to light of the past causes their removal? Um, sometimes the questions, often for people of course, English is a um, second uh, language. I hope I'm writing <laughs> anyway. Mm. Um, certainly during the mindfulness um, with, with the breathing, and, and tomorrow we'll be expanding out our field of attention, um, this does contribute towards greater calmness. And there will be, within that calmness, a diminishing of some of the tensions which we experience in the body. Not through specifically going to them, although we will be doing that, but just through the connectedness that gets established with breathing, which, though we may experience it in particular parts of the body, such <coughs> as nose, throat, chest, diaphragm, maybe uh, abdomen, we, um, the influence of the impact of the breathing in those parts of the body has its repercussions because of the connectedness through all the other areas. And so as a result of this, a great deal of relaxation and settling in can take place. I wouldn't say that sustained mindfulness is supposed to bring up the old nourishment of past actions. And in fact, in the very process of deepening of calmness, some of the past actions and causes and conditions, things that we have done in the past, don't have to surface and also dissipate themselves. In other words, through the process of uh, insight meditation, it's not necessary to have to work out all of the past. This is a myth. And if one opens up the doors of the past a little bit in the Eastern sense, then one is opening up to the possibility of past lives. And if one thinks one's got to work that lot out, <coughs> but it does occur 
in the practice that at times some of the past accumulations enter into the present. When they enter into the present, this is called the fruits of karma. It's not karma, it's the fruits of karma. The actions, the past actions were in the, in the old, in yesterday, or yesteryear, and the experience of it is in the present. And this is sometimes what arises and is experienced in the present, the impact of the past on our consciousness as we settle into the here and now. One or two questions um, arising and, and comments, and this period basically is a, a question uh, period. Um, you said that harsh actions, if accompanied by compassion and understanding, sometimes are necessary and beneficial. Can the liberation movements of the third world, which use violence and kill, act out of such motives? Do not killing and hate go together? at least in the case of mass movements. If so, would that mean a negation of the liberating function of these movements? Um, in the, the talk yesterday evening, in referring to this need towards uh, human beings collectively and uh, individually towards greater freedom and liberation from life, both of the oppressiveness of one's own past or the oppressiveness of circumstances around, some of the movements take and use violence. I personally, my personal view is, I cannot under any circumstances condone violence. I feel that it's been used time and time and time and time again, and the result is that it's that one liberation movement, one movement towards greater freedom, and because of the lack of understanding which takes place, when success is achieved, that very group then becomes the oppressors. And we see this countless occasions through in life. So I feel, and as I mentioned in the talk yesterday evening, that, this, that there is the real necessity in this world for more and more spokespersons with regard to non-violence. Because if the voices of non-violence become mute, then the world would keep, re keep resorting to violence as being regarded as the only means towards social change. And that's the position that I uh, take. And this doesn't negate the liberating functions of movement. Are emotions, no, sorry, are emotional releasing forms of psychotherapy, especially those which encourage the release and expression of negative emotions, complementary or contradictory to 
vipassana ideas of ahimsa. Do these thoughts, emotions create or clear up karma? What is the best way to purify emotions of anger, hatred, hurt, etc.? There is, um, I've noticed in, in, in the West, um, a growing, a substantially growing um, interest in the practical applications of psychotherapy and all the skills and insights that are available through it with insight meditation. And this has been reflected, I've noticed, in the increasing number of psychotherapists on retreats. In one of the retreats I gave uh, in the States, there were 100 people, and uh, a third of them were psychotherapists of some form or other, including uh, th therapists, counselors, um, psychiatrists, and so forth. And, and there's also an increasing um, amount of literature, articles, theses, books, and so forth, um, referring to the interconnection of these two together. And one of the great values which therapy is recognizing through uh, insight meditation is that it offers the individual um, quite a considerable number, which we only employ a few here in <coughs> 10 days, of tools and resources for a person to be able to work on themselves and work on the uh, emotional life in terms of being in touch with it, accommodating it, etc. Um, and I would say that there is much value in therapy for um, and some of the purpose of therapy is releasing emotion. Emotion which is trapped, held, denied, or quite frequently not understood. And this also occurs here within the context of a meditation retreat. In that here we're not, as I mentioned, stimu stimulating <laughs> deliberately, but certainly it may arise. If it arises here in the meditation hall, Please, please, please let it arise. <coughs> Though there may be the agreement amongst us with regard to silence, silence of speech in here and silence of body, the uh, exception to this general guideline is in the re release of uh, emotion. So in other words, sometimes it occurs a person feels like <coughs> crying, sometimes uh, screaming, shaking is um, happening. If it's happening in here in the meditation hall, Please feel completely free to allow this to happen. Don't feel, oh God, I shan't do it, shouldn't do it here, should go to my room, I should be outside. If this is in this room where it's happening, then let it happen in this room. It also is very good for the rest of us. It keeps us very much um, here and now, and we can watch any reactions that we have. So we're doing a good service as well. So, now, just in the release of emotions, and this is, I think, where psychotherapy, or at least clients of psychotherapy, need to be watchful of, is that the, there can be the assumption that just in the release of emotion, that that somehow is what it's all about. That isn't enough. Because the same difficulty and problems, etc., will, in the course of time, accumulate again. So there may be, and there is much value when necessary, to release, but the emphasis is always on the understanding of oneself, on clarity 
insight, self-knowledge about the inner life. When there is understanding, clear understanding, then problems clear up. Possibly a vehicle, a means toward that, towards that understanding is the release of emotion as, as one of the very useful tools. And in speaking, finally, the person asks, with regard to karma, karma is the influence of the past in the present and the influence of it in the present when it is identified with the present and we are acting on it. Then we are making karma. And it's important to distinguish between the fruits of karma, old into the present, and the acting on it, which is the creating and reproducing of karma. And, if we, and when there is understanding, it's this understanding which clears up karma. How can the Vipassana community be more accessible to working class and third world people in the West? <coughs> the uh, Vipassana community, uh, um, which like a number of other um, spiritual communities um, uh, in the West, has to be watchful of any kind of uh, insularity, just as any others do, because to me the deathbed uh, for growth, development and change is generally expressed through insularity. And in this there needs to be further and further exploration taking place in which there's a kind of marriage going on between the inner and the outer. And therefore the tools, so we say, of Vipassana are used, which has its emphasis on observation and insight in a somewhat equal and balanced way between the inner and the outer situation. Now someone else I noticed asked um, a question with regard to what is happening with the meeting that we had here on the tenth day. And I'll just um, mention that because I know others have wondered as well. On the uh, tenth morning of the last retreat, owing to Budgaya um, becoming the um, um, primary um, shithole of Bihar, we had a meeting here to uh, see what possibly, in whatever small contribution that we as people could make to this situation, since both the Tibetans um, and the Indians have a pathetic you know, as have, have little or no understanding of hygiene and the organizers of the Kala Chakra, <coughs> the Tibetan organizers, and the Bihari government took virtually little or no steps with regard to this. This has led to the excrement being all over the place around Budgaya with all the risks that go with it and one aspect of it is this proliferation of flies, some of whom have found their way into this meditation hall. And so at the meeting we discussed what we could do and what has come out of the meeting. First is that we went to the fields opposite the Burmese Vihara and clearing up some of the dreadful stinking mess 
in that area. And we, you could just dig in the sand six inches and turn the sand over where the people had, had a shit and put the sand on top. And the maggots, in just a few inches, were tens of thousands, literally. So they lay, the flies lay their eggs, they become maggots, and from maggots they become flies. And with the heat coming up in um, uh, April and March and April, it's going to be a miserable and potentially dangerous situation for all the residents of Budgaya and the surrounding area. So a letter has been written, a very, very good, a very sound letter by friends from here, and this letter states exactly what's, what's wrong, what the dangers and risks are, and what the remedies are. This is going to the Bihari uh, government in, um, um, in Budgaya, and an appointment is being made for a number of us to go there and meet with the district uh, DM, district magistrate, and other letters are going to the opposition, and um, um, uh, there's the collection of um, signatures are being made to form a petition, and very kindly, the very first person who put her name on the petition put her hand in her pocket and said, here, please, is 50 rupees towards the work. And another person has written um, articles, photographs have uh, already been taken, and this is going out during, uh, during this week. And also it was agreed to call the name, because labels and letterheads um, has a little extra weight with the authorities to call it uh, the International Society for the Welfare of Budgaya. And from using that as a, a basis, we hope anyway to bring about more awareness to the uh, authorities through the media and through direct contact with them, as well as small uh, engaged actions of actually showing in the village, quite important here, that one doesn't have to be at the bottom, bottom, bottom end of the, this wretched <coughs> caste system in order to shovel shit. So that's what's happening. What is the difference between mindfulness and awareness? Now, the, the important with these concepts, if you see, if you listen to different teachers and teachings, both from the similar and dissimilar um, traditions, you may get different definitions. And you will find, and I know some of the teachers who are friends of mine, I mean, vipassana teachers, vipassana literally means insight, just that's the actual meaning, um, will use, and as I do also sometimes, use concepts like mindfulness and awareness somewhat interchangeably. You know, as I say, be aware of your breathing, be mindful of your breathing, things like that. But, basically, I do make a difference, and I give a deeper significance, a more... Yeah, a deeper significance to awareness than mindfulness. In other words, mindfulness is a very, very useful, very beneficial tool, no doubt about it. Be mindful of breathing, be mindful of walking, be mindful from one moment to the next. And there's a certain texture, a certain substance. Generally, to sustain the mindfulness, 
it does require some effort and extra energy and a little bit use of the will to keep the mindfulness going. That mindfulness keeps making our contact. And awareness, we might say, is a refinement of mindfulness and in, aware in awareness we are seeing things very clearly, very in which there's no effort, no will there, and there's just a pure witnessing, a pure seeing of things. And that pure seeing, it brings its own understanding. And so we develop mindfulness in order to become increasingly more aware, might be more increasingly more aware of change, of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, or of the impersonal nature, or, or of the um, interconnectedness of things, and all that is born somewhat spontaneously out of awareness. So mindfulness and awareness are not two absolutely separate things together, but awareness, shall we say, a refinement of that mindfulness. <coughs> is, it <laughs> is it necessary to have a guru to make progress? <coughs> to what extent should one be mentally connected to a, to a teacher? Um, gurus are, um, t tend to be um, discussed more, I noticed, in India and brought up more than they do in, in the West. And of course we are in Gurudom, so not surprisingly. Um, the, the gurus, both in the East and in the West these days, are having a rather hard time, I notice. Um, they haven't been living up to the various expectations of their disciples. And, uh, and a few of them, I just had, um, someone just showed me a magazine the other day, and yet a another one is, is being clobbered um, for, um, and, or the, or, and the organization, and there's a lot of, um, um, there's a kind of various coups going on, you know, etc., etc. And Gurudam is, um, can also be, in its more questionable aspects, a very big business. And there's a great deal of, of money to be, to be made in having somebody sitting up on the throne and um, um, imparting blessings, this kind of uh, waving of the hand through, through the air, and everybody in absolute awe. I remember seeing the cardinals in Catholicism when I was a reporter doing it like this. In, and I thought, is this the fullness of spirituality? LAUGHTER um, and, and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, um, within listening and within learning, the, an individual may show and, um, and like to play the role of the guru and, and be, be the guru. That doesn't mean to say, of course, that one cannot learn and, and one cannot derive enormous benefits. And in that, in that relationship to to a to a guru in the contemporary use of, of this, it means you know, that approach, again, of awareness, and of mindfulness, of care, of interest, of attentiveness, of the willingness to learn. And sometimes, too, within that, there's a certain devotional aspect which um, <coughs> connects with a person. But 
within the, all, all of that and all the heart benefits that come out of that connectedness, one has to be acutely aware of projection. Because when one starts projecting onto any one who is called a guru, one starts to become somewhat blind and naive. And it's led for some, and I've heard it too frequently, it is for some to an enormous degree of suffering, particularly when a person's given their heart and soul, and, and in quite a few cases, their wealth and their home, and they're giving up their marriage, and giving away their inheritance to the guru. And I have had people in my room, believe me, sitting and weeping and weeping over having given so much and having realized that their good-heartedness has been exploited and they, and they have a feeling of being betrayed. So I s say there are people who are, should we call, bona fide gurus, and, uh, and there are those who are charlatans. And there are some charlatans around. <coughs> Many texts discuss the male physical process of enlightenment. Is there a female process? Um, What texts? <laughs> if there are texts which do that, burn them. <laughs> Sexual energies, please speak to us about it. <laughs> are you saying you don't know already? <laughs> Well, this is a very big field. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the sittings and in the walkings and in the <laughs> practices, uh, sexual uh, energy, as much as it of the various other energies uh, which are uh, present in ourselves, do arise and affect and uh, stimulate um, different uh, parts, parts of the body and generally requiring for that some kind of uh, image and so forth to uh, sustain, sustain that energy. This energy has been, has, has been frequently um, uh, recognized as uh, an energy which can be usefully transformed and usefully transformed and in the sitting practice if it's occurring, sometimes just working a little bit more with the breathing. And if you feel there's a, there's a the sexual energy is there and it's getting concentrated, generally moving down, stimulating parts of the body, then just to have the feeling of opening up the energy more, just breathing and opening up and spreading that energy right out to all the various um, extremes and corners, shall we say, of the body, opening that energy out, and that energy can contribute very well to a sense of well-being. So in that, we're not denying the sexual energy, not negating it in any way, but through the breathing, uh, use of the breathing, expanding it out from its <coughs> somewhat contracted state. And, uh, and that respect uh, be belongs to our practice.
person asked, is it really true what you said tonight? That was last night's talk. Please repeat it and repeat it. It will be the major strength to do the practice. Um, in such talks, and particularly uh, the talks like, uh, with regard to yesterday evening, if something is useful and, uh, and relevant and pertinent for one's life or for totality of life, then I'm well pleased. And within such themes of such talks, as um, particularly personal observations, personal experiences, and which influence the talk. Whereas there might be other talks, for example, which have um, more dealing with the uh, nature of things, having far less of a personal influence within them. If I was to speak, for example, about the Four Noble Truths, or dependent arising, or the Eightfold Path, or Four Foundations for Awareness, these kind of themes, if I, if I was to group them in that way, one would say that this is, uh, has less of the personal influence within it. Whereas last night's talk, obviously I was touching things which are important for myself and <coughs> close to heart for myself and mm. a number of others. <coughs> Please discuss the situation custom of begging in India from a Buddhist point of view. Again, if you ask me for a Buddhist point of view, I'm not an authority of Buddhist uh, points, of, points of view, so I prefer to speak for myself, and if you feel that this meets with a Buddhist point of view, all well and good, and if you don't, all well and good. Um, from, the, from a personal point of view, and probably from a Buddhist point of view, I would say um, both would love to see completely the end of all begging in India. Because if there was the end of begging in, the in, of in, in India, there would be the end of poverty in India. In the tradi religious tradition, the word bhikkhu, that means, has come to mean monk. One of my swan songs is that um, never, the Buddha never um, introduced an order of monks. That's another theme. The word bhikkhu in the Pali language, in its literal meaning, means beggar. And the female of that is bhikkhuni. Or in the Sanskrit, it's bhikshu, bhikshuni. Now, the emphasis then was um, that people who went into homelessness for spiritual purposes were making an important and valid contribution towards society, and therefore the society, in its appreciation, um, supported the bhikshus and the bhikshunis, who were homeless men and women engaged in spiritual practice. They weren't monks living in a, in a, in, within a temple and confined in that way. And the responsibility of bhikshus and bhikshunis was to work obviously on themselves to come to deeper spiritual insights and understanding and to bring that's those insights and understanding to the society for the welfare and benefit of the society. And the society appreciated such those bhikshus and bhikshunis for that and supported them through <coughs> food, clothing, shelter and medicine 
for that process to continue. This sadly, sadly got very has got very much corrupted. And if there was a greater appreciation in our own society of the work that we are doing and the contributions that we can make to peace and harmony on this planet, our society too would be supporting us. Instead of people having to pay for courses and work to get the money together and so forth. I was trying to breathe in the <coughs> quote-unquote yogi way, <coughs> going first to the abdomen. Your guided meditation yesterday, you only went to the chest. What should I try to do? Um, with regard to the breathing, uh, in the guided meditation yesterday, I referred to three points or three stages in the breathing Nose, throat, one. Chest, two. Diaphragm, three. Or the breathing it seems to be flowing deeper for you, although I, d I didn't mention it, as the person says, um, abdomen. And in that connection with these three areas, often quite vulnerable and sensitive areas of the body, is also to see the link-up of the breathing between those three areas. So in other words, in using the practice, we're using it in order to experience more fully and totally the whole breath experience in which countless numbers of cells are enlivened through the contact of the breathing in the body. So therefore it's an opening process. In that opening process which, which takes place, the, it's both on the in-breath of course as well as on the outgoing breath. But if a person wishes just to stay with the abdomen and the rise and fall of the abdomen, which is one of the countless ways of the yogi in breathing, then please, by all means, do so. Just see, one sees for oneself with these practices. These are questions from last week. There's another one. Does your opinion about the offering of light Oh, this is a question from last week, I'll explain this. Apply to the teachings of the tradition which use offerings, actual and mental, as a way to open the heart. Um, what I said was, uh, at the end of the retreat, that I regard the lighting of the candles in here um, simply as a means for us to see where we are, where we're going in and out of the room. I don't regard it in any way as having any religious significance what's, for me personally whatsoever. And therefore we are in making a small contribution here to the conservation of uh, energy and just doing our practice and I think I said something about see the light within yourself. However, in saying that, that isn't in any way a criticism of the uh, lighting of candles as a spiritual or religious gesture. And, and certainly for myself, the, uh, the day that I arrived here in uh, Budgaya, I went to the, uh, uh, the stupa, and as you, in the evening, as you know, some of you, those who were here in that period of the color chakra and after it, there were 
thousands of candles. One could hardly find a place to put the candle. There were that many candles around the stupa. And I also was one of those, one of tens of thousands of people who lit a candle and that was done as a small uh, gesture for all beings. And I feel that, that there's that long-standing tradition and when I go to the uh, Catholic uh, church on a Sunday morning in uh, England when I'm home with my uh, mother and father and quite frequently we go to, uh, after the service, to go to light a, a candle for whatever intention we may um, have in our mind at that, that, that time. <coughs> so I'm just saying, while here, um, bare bones practice, being in touch with oneself, and just regarding these things, such as candle lighting here, as a functional. As a Jew, this question may have been a few days ago, but anyway, as a Jew I would appreciate it if during this universal retreat you wouldn't only quote Jesus, <laughs> since he himself wasn't original. He had been, historically speaking, a very good Jewish man before he started preaching, and I, had, I assume he had learnt a bit of Judaism himself in his early days, before he identified so much with what he had learned, that it became his own. <laughs> Doesn't, isn't worth quoting. Um, in, um, in, these, uh, in this quoting of um, people of uh, Jesus, and, uh, and of others, of past and present, and if I may say, I do it as, as um, infrequently as, uh, as <coughs> possible, um, I would say that various um, teachings, spiritual teachers, need to be approached with a certain degree of uh, care and care and sensitivity, and that with Jesus, for, for um, example, um, I think it would be to underestimate his significance by simply regarding him as being a very good man or a very good Jewish man, and what I would suggest is that one approaches the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if one explores those uh, Gospels, I think that may contribute um, towards a deeper understanding of Jesus and of his contribution towards the welfare of humanity, rather than our forming views and opinions and judgments which um, may uh, indicate a pre-judgmental mind. These are all asked. Just one, two other questions, I'll take those. Few <coughs> again, more questions about um, the gurus. What is more disturbing to meditation? To keep thinking about how long is still left till the end of the meditation, or simply have a look at the watch?
Um, whichever is um, more disturbing uh, would be the one that one chooses. And I would say, theref therefore, um, if possible, um, not to use a watch. Um, the watch is um, a kind of um, little symbol for security in a, in a meditation. And so one is sitting and one doesn't know how long there is uh, left to go. And one says, well, if I have my watch, a little watch on the floor, some people like, or just, just twist my wrist and have a quick peep. Oh, so if there's 10 minutes to go, oh, then I'll gauge myself for 10 minutes, or 15, or 5, or wh whatever. And if in our practice we can just not use a watch. Now, if one knows one that this is too difficult, then to leave the uh, watch in the room or put it in one's pocket or whatever. And so one's simply learning to be with the um, unknowing mind, to really experience unknowingness. And what comes out of this unknowingness? Reaction, insecurity, clinging, fear, agitation, etc., etc. So that the watch itself, um, and time itself, isn't being used to safeguard ourselves against restlessness. Now, some people, I think when, when watch, a watch can have a useful m function, is when sometimes a person is endeavouring to sit longer and to sit still. And using the watch at that time to go from sitting from 10 minutes, say, to 20 minutes to half an hour. And if one is using the watch in that way in the beginning of the sitting, in, in terms of just the sustained sil stillness, fine, all right. But once the move has been made, if one's working in that way with the watch, <coughs> turn the watch upside down, put it, put it away, so that one learns to experience things um, in just as they are happening without you resorting to time for security. <coughs> Please discuss prana, chi, ki, si. What about me? <laughs> I put that in. As it is variously referred to in different cultures, how are acupuncture meridians and nadis chakras related? Please, please, this is all in Chinese and Sanskrit and Tibetan and it's, I'm just a poor English waller. <laughs> <coughs> Have you ever done a walking meditation in Calcutta's streets? Sir, <laughs> <coughs> so, will it, oh madam, whatever I say, is it going to change your life? Are you going to rush off to Calcutta. <laughs> in the days that, what the person, if I surmise, what, I guess, what the person is saying, the walking and the contact of the feet with the ground, is that enough? As the days go by with our practice and with our meditations, we'll be expanding out the field of attention from just the contact of the feet with, with the ground. And certainly, wherever we are, whether we're in Calcutta or California, there is always a need and a necessity for mindfulness and awareness in life, inwardly and outwardly, and the necessary responses to go with it. Is it necessary, absolutely necessary, to keep the eyes closed during a sitting? The Buddha, as far as I can determine from statues and pictures, never fully closed his eyes. 
they were always three quarters closed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.